If you're a guest this morning and this is your first time with us, we're in a series called Inspired, which is taking the Bible all the way through book by book and exploring it. And today, we're in the books of history in the Old Testament, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. Sour grapes. I, uh, I assume you understand the phrase and perhaps have used it, perhaps have felt sour grapes before. Sour grapes is used in, in, in a lot of unique ways. Did you know that sour grapes is the title of at least four songs, the title of a 1998 movie, and the title of a book of poems by William Williams? You can also buy pickled sour grapes to eat. Why? I can't imagine. Also, sour grapes is the name of the villainous in the Strawberry Shortcake story series. A grandpa has to know these things. Most often we think of sour grapes as an expression of discontent, wanting something but not getting it, acting spitefully when disappointed. Most believe the expression as we use it came from the fable attributed to Aesop, the fox and the grapes, when the fox for all of his efforts just couldn't quite reach that cluster of grapes and so he snidely concludes that they must be sour. The story we're going to explore this morning is a story of sour grapes. The whole episode surrounds something wanted but unattainable. It is filled with disappointment, a pouting king, an honorable man, a villainous murder, and yes, grapes. The setting is a vineyard and the story is found in 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles are companion volumes, and they cover a period of history from the beginning of Solomon's reign to the death of King Ahab, or a period of about 150 years. I view the books of Kings and Chronicles sort of like I do the Gospels. They cover the same material or the same period of history, but they take a look at those events from slightly different perspectives. I would encourage you this week to study through both of those books. In chapter 21, <clears throat> in this story, we are introduced to a man by the name of Naboth. We don't know anything about Naboth except that he was from the city of Jezreel, that he seems from all accounts to be an honorable man, and that he owned a quaint little vineyard very close to the king's winter palace there in Jezreel. The king in the story is Ahab. Of the 19 kings that ruled over the northern kingdom in Israel, Ahab was by far the worst. The very mention of his name brings to mind the epitome of wickedness. He is a study in contrast, folks. He had more potential and more opportunity than any king that ever served in the northern kingdom and yet failed so miserably that God promised to purge the land of his entire family. More biblical text is devoted to his reign than any other monarch of the northern kingdom, and yet all of that text relates to the tragic story of Ahab's reign from beginning to end. The third character that comes to play in this story is Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel. Now, Jezebel grew up as a Sidonian princess, and her marriage to Ahab was purely political. Bad decision, okay? Very bad. 
when she married and moved to Israel, Jezebel brought with her a renewed interest in the worship of the Phoenician gods and goddesses. And during her reign as queen, more altars to pagan gods and more worship sites to these pagan deities were built in, in Israel than any other time in Jewish history. She was nasty. She was manipulative. She was a malevolent ruler. She was bad to the bone, ugly through and through. And everyone who knew her feared her. Ironically, Ahab and Jezebel had access to the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. But instead of leaning on him for spiritual wisdom and advice, they considered him a spiritual adversary. Bad decision. Well, the story unfolds as follows. As king, Ahab was an incredibly wealthy man. After all, if you have both a summer palace and a winter palace, that is a statement of prestige. All that Naboth owned was this small, quaint little vineyard that just happened to be located next to the winter palace of Ahab there in Jezreel. And Ahab wanted that vineyard in the worst way because he said he thought it would make a perfect vegetable garden because it was so close to the palace. <laughs> Personally, I don't think he cared a bit about vegetable gardens. I think he just wanted the land because it wasn't his and he wanted everything around the palace, and by golly, he was going to have it. He was king, after all. So Ahab went to Naboth, and he offered to buy it, and he said, if there's another piece of ground you'd rather have, I will give you more ground in exchange for the vineyard. Naboth, it's your choice. But Naboth wanted no part of the deal. The vineyard had been in his family for years, and it was the law in Israel that everyone had a lasting right to his personal property and that no one, not even the king, could force a man to sell his property. This, this was more than just a piece of ground to Naboth. This was his inheritance. He had roots there. Uh, this was more than a vineyard. It was his family legacy. And so no amount of money or no other parcel of land meant to Naboth anything like this vineyard meant to him. So he says no. And Ahab returns to the palace like a spoiled child, plops down on his bed, pouts, and refuses to eat. This is a classic example of sour grapes. When you can't have something, you want it even more. Actually, folks, can I tell you that what's going on here is much deeper than just sour grapes. Ahab is guilty of breaking the Tenth Commandment. I know what you're thinking. Tenth Commandment. Which, which one is that? Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 reads like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anything would include a vineyard. Now, what exactly does the Bible mean when it says covet something? Well, the Hebrew word that we get the word covet from actually means desire. And in and of itself, there is nothing wrong with desiring something. 
As a matter of fact, God gave us the capacity to desire things based on how we are wired, our personalities, the gifts that we have from God. This command does not condemn the desire to have a husband or a wife or a house or a car or friends or a donkey if you so choose. What this 10th commandment forbids is a passionate longing, not for a house like your neighbor, but for your neighbor's house. And you resent that your neighbor has it, and you will do anything in your power to get it away from your neighbor. Now that's coveting. It's not just the house. It's anything your neighbor has. Author Albert Barnes makes this observation on the last five of the Ten Commandments. He said, the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments forbid us to injure our neighbor in deed. The ninth forbids us to injure him in word. And the tenth, this one we're talking about, in thought. No human eye can see the coveting heart. It is witnessed only by him who possesses it and by him to whom all things are open. You see, when you covet only you and God know you're committing that sin. And you say, well, so this one isn't so bad because of that, right? There is something insidious about a sin that is mental and therefore invisible to others around us. It is perhaps more deadly than the preceding commandments for that very reason. You can do in your mind what you would never think of doing in front of others, and yet when you do it in your mind, that is the beginning point for acting it out in other aspects of our lives. What starts in the mind often ends up translating into action. Murder, adultery, theft, and falsehoods all begin in the mind, and they are often the outgrowth of a covetous attitude. Thoughts precede actions. When you covet what your neighbor has, and you want it at all costs, you may be willing to murder, commit adultery, lie, or steal to get it. Be ever so careful with your attitude. Things in this world cannot satisfy. And those things that belong to somebody else that you think you really want, those you think that will satisfy will be even less satisfying if you get them. Contentment is not found in what we want and somebody else has. As a matter of fact, contentment isn't even found in something that you can have when you get it. Contentment is to be found in relationships, relationship with others, and most importantly, relationship with God. Stop coveting the things of this world and the things of your neighbors. Before he died in 1977... Elvis Presley had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls-Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom touring bus, and three motorcycles. His favorite car, however, was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. The top was covered with pearl white naga hide. The body was sprayed with 40 coats of specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all of the metal trim on the car was 18-karat gold-plated. It was filled with all kinds of gold-plated accessories including a refrigerator that was capable of making ice in two minutes exactly. But when Elvis died, he died a lonely, unhappy, discontented man. He never discovered that which would truly satisfy. Keep your priorities straight. Do not covet 
it leads to sour grapes. Well, back to the story. Jezebel comes into the palace, and she finds Ahab pouting on his bed, feeling sorry for himself, and asks, why are you acting this way, and why aren't you eating? And Ahab explains, he says, I really, 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 really wanted that vineyard of Naboth, and he won't sell it. And that's where the story goes from sour grapes to the grapes of wrath. You can almost hear the disgust in Jezebel's voice as she speaks to Ahab. This is how you act as a king of Israel? Get up and eat. I'll take care of it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. And with that, she takes matters into her own hands. Using Ahab's royal seal, she sends out a couple of letters under his name to wimpy community leaders and tells them to call for a religious fast. And when all the people gather on that fast day, they are to seat Naboth at a place of prominence and honor. And yet, they are also to hire two thugs who are going to bear false witness, who are going to lie about all of this before the people. And they are to be seated exactly across from Naboth. And at the given moment, these two who were being paid for their false testimony were to stand up and level their accusations, their false accusations, their bold-faced lies in front of the people to Naboth. You can, you can start to hear the ninth commandment crumble, can't you? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What was the charge, you say? They said, we heard Naboth curse God and the king. Ironic, isn't it? Jezebel hated God, and yet she used God as a basis for a senseless murder of an innocent man. Now commandment number six, you shall not murder, shatters in the night. Jezebel who had cursed God with her lifestyle and pagan worship, is responsible for the death of a godly man. These compliant but spineless community leaders conspired with the king for this dastardly deed, and when the accusation is made, they drag Naboth outside the city walls, and they stone him to death on the word of two false witnesses. And as soon as the deed was done, Ahab jumps out of bed like a boy on Christmas morning, runs down to take possession of his brand new vegetable garden. He doesn't even ask what's happened to Naboth. I think he knew what happened to Naboth. He didn't care what happened to Naboth. He just wanted the land. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal, is suddenly trampled underfoot like grapes in a wine press. What a dastardly, cowardly, selfish deed. Don't you ever wonder how God can watch such injustices take place and remain apparently silent? Ahab and Jezebel have reached the bottom of their moral abyss. Why didn't God intervene and get Ahab off the throne long before such an innocent man like Naboth was killed? Oh, how I wish I had answers. I've learned throughout ministry that life is seldom fair. Naboth didn't deserve what happened. This was the result of a poor choice. This wasn't the result of a poor choice or a sinful decision on his part. It was the result of a lousy, sinful choice on the part of others. He was in the right, but wickedness in the palace trumped righteousness in the vineyard. 
The innocent suffered, the guilty prospered, and I look around at life on a daily basis and I see the same thing. You hear the words, it's inoperable cancer, and you don't hear anything else after that from the words from the lips of the doctor. You lose a good job because your companies have merged or there's a downsizing. It's not because of poor job performance. It's just because of the circumstances, but you don't have a job nonetheless. Your marriage falls apart, not because you want it to, but because your spouse wants out, and nothing you can do keeps it together. Your child walks away from the principles and the standards and the character and the morality that you've tried so desperately to implant in him or her, and you are left to watch the pieces crumble around you. Life isn't fair. I hear that all the time, and all I can do is agree. You're right. It's not fair, but it's not God's doing. Was it fair that God had to die for my sins so that I would have a chance at everlasting life and that you would have a chance at everlasting life? No way. That wasn't fair, but God chose to do that so that we would have that choice. You see, throughout Scripture, God never promises to intervene and spare us from the bad and the broken moments of life in a ripped-apart world. But I want you to know this morning that when your highest hopes come crashing down and your dreams for the future lie shattered at your feet, He is the only one who can pick up the pieces and put life back together. It is in moments like that that I find myself clinging to what the book of Romans at chapter 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. And so I tell you, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. When the world brings suffering, God is still on the throne and is working for our ultimate good. And may I remind you that God's perspective is not our perspective. Naboth lost an inherited vineyard, but he gained an inheritance in heaven. Not a bad trade. You see, the issue between the sovereignty of God and the boundary of human freedom is one that we will never completely understand in this life. God gives us the privilege of choosing right and wrong. But when we cross that boundary of choosing wrong one too many times, only God knows. Joseph Alexander wrote, there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Well, the story continues. When Ahab arrived at the garden, guess who was there to meet him? It was the prophet Elijah. And Ahab looks at him and says with a sneer, ah, so you have found me, my enemy. But Elijah's response reduces him to fear. I have found you, he answered. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, 
I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country and then the writer of king adds this commentary as if a parenthetical explanation verse 25 there was never a man like ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the lord urged on by jezebel his wife he behaved in the vilest of manner going after idols like the amorites the lord drove out before israel oh when you think God doesn't notice, or worse, when you think God doesn't care, I want you to remember this story. God's justice may not happen on our timetable, but God will bring justice to the wrongs of this world. The word of the prophet brings hope to mind in this passage because it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Do you get that? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now I want you to fast forward three years from this. Everything is just fine with Ahab for three years. And then he goes into battle, allied with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. But Ahab's a little bit unnerved by this battle against the Arameans. And this time he puts on the, army of a common, uh, the armor of a common soldier, not his kingly attire. And so they engage the Arameans in battle. And all of the attention focuses on Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who, by the way, is all dressed in his kingly finery. And Ahab must have been smiling to himself, thinking, it worked. They won't find me. And then the Bible says, a lone archer raises back his bow, lets fly with an arrow, and that arrow finds a joint in the armor of Ahab in his chariot and mortally wounds him. His aides prop him up in the chariot as life begins to ebb from him and as the sun set on the battlefield, the sun set on the life of this wicked king and they took his chariot to the pool in Samaria and washed it out and where the blood of Naboth had been spilled out that's exactly where Ahab's blood was washed out and the dogs the wild dogs of the community came and licked it up whatever a man sows that is what he will reap Fast forward six years. Jezebel has reached a point of no return, and she is thrown out of an upper story window. Her body hits the ground. The blood splatters the wall, just like Elijah said, and the dogs come to eat her. By the end of a decade, not one of Ahab's descendants is left alive. Be careful what you do and who you follow. God will not be mocked. He does see, and he will bring to justice the wickedness of this world. And we want to stand up and cheer and say, yes, the bad guy got it after all. But that is not the end of the story I want you to remember. 
Because the end of the story is far more incredible and profound than, than you can possibly imagine. Okay, now I want you to go back to the scene of the vineyard when Elijah and Ahab are talking. This is in chapter 21, verses 27 and 29. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And then the, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. This is the part that I just have such a hard time fathoming. And God says, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. Oh my goodness. I wouldn't have given Ahab a second glance. I wouldn't have cared how much sackcloth he put on or how many ashes he sat in or how humble or, or contrite he would have been. I'd have just given him a lightning bolt and then chuckled at the crater that was left in the vineyard. Which is why you need to be glad I'm not in charge. <laughs> and why I'm, not, why I'm glad you're not in charge, because you would have done the very same thing. After all of the wickedness and the despicability, God says to Elijah, Elijah, look, did you see him? He's contrite, he's humble, he's repentant. I, I, I'm going to postpone that punishment for just a while. If ever there was an example of unmerited favor, if ever there's an example of grace, it is right there in Naboth's vineyard. You see, folks, God knows no sour grapes. You see, the heart of the story is not how wicked Ahab was or how innocent Naboth was, but how gracious and merciful God is. The heartbeat of the Bible from beginning to end is the same. God is a God of grace, even though we don't deserve it. God is a God of mercy, even though we don't deserve it. Now that is an ending I want you to remember. Augustine wrote, we count on God's mercy for our past mistakes, on God's love for our present needs, on God's sovereignty for our future. Max Licato put it this way, even though by the book, even though by the book I'm guilty, by God's love I get another chance. Even though by the law I'm indicted, by God's mercy, I'm given a fresh start. If you've been chewing on sour grapes for a long time, now's the day to spit them out. Let go of your bitterness, disappointments, selfish longings, and let the mercy of God give you a fresh, sweet start.